therefore, if you are offering your gifts at the altar, and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must go, must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is, oh, it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I was open at Matthew 5, that would be, that would be grand. Uh, why don't um, we start by praying for ourselves? Father in heaven, we do thank you for these words of Jesus. We pray that as we consider them and uh, read them and reflect upon them, that you might draw near to us, that where there are areas for repentance, you might bring us to repentance. We pray for each one of us that uh, we might grow in our hunger 
and in our thirst to be righteous. And may it be a righteousness which is not only skin deep, but a righteousness which goes right to the depths of our heart, to our deepest motivations, to our desires, our hopes and our dreams. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, I think in some ways the Christian life can be compared to climbing a mountain. Uh, if you can imagine uh, somebody setting out uh, on a um, venture to uh, climb Mount Everest, that um, you probably start you start down at sea level. Sometimes that's what they like to do: start at sea level and climb to the very top. So you start out at sea level. And if you can imagine what it'd be like getting prepared for um, a journey like that, you'd have been to. Uh, Kathmandu or Paddy Cullen, you'd have the right sort of walking boots, you'd have the right socks, you'd have the right backpack, you'd have the right drink container, everything would be organised. It'd be very exciting, I think, setting up an exhibition or expedition like that. You'd set off and you'd start walking. Imagine doing that, and as you walk from the flat, you begin to climb, and the, uh, the pathway gets steeper and steeper, and you start to labour harder and harder, but it's exciting. Uh, there's something brand new about it. Every every experience is, is something which is novel. And you keep going and you start making really good progress. You continue to progress, you get higher and higher until you're somewhere, somewhere around the halfway mark up Mount Everest. And the goal, of course, is to get to the top. But when you get about halfway up, there's a ledge. And uh, you look around on the ledge and you think, oh, it'd be not a bad idea if I just sat down and had a bit of a break. And so you sit down and you take your backpack off and you think, I'll just stay here for a few minutes. And you look around and you actually notice that the ledge is quite crowded. That the ledge is crowded with all sorts of other climbers just like you. They've all got the same equipment, they've got the same gear. And they've all set, settled down to take a bit of a rest. Some of them have even taken their boots off and they're hanging their, their bare feet over the edge of the ledge and dangling it in the cool mountain air. Occasionally, there are people who have actually unrolled, unrolled their swag and they're fast asleep on the ledge. There's a couple of people who have kept climbing, but most people seem to have settled. And you look around and you think, well, I've done pretty well, haven't I? I've actually got as far as pretty well everybody else has gone. I've got further than some folk have. So maybe I'll just stay here on the ledge. And in some ways, I think that, that is a description of what happens for many of us in the Christian life. Uh, I've been a Christian now for, for 40 odd years and uh, my observation is that that is the great temptation and it's also the thing that um, happens most likely. You know what it's like when you first get converted, you're so excited about this, this, this whole new thing, this whole new world and so the first thing you want to do is you want to be kitted out properly. So uh, if you're in Sydney you go to Kurong and you buy yourself a big Bible and you buy perhaps one of those covers for your Bible, it's got room for your devotional pen and your devotional pad and your devotional notes and, 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 and you, you kit yourself out. You go and buy some books by Tim Keller and you, you, you get all the stuff that you need to mark yourself out as a Christian. Your piggy bank now says Jesus saves on it and all the stuff that, you that, that marks you out is now being a believer. And it's exciting. And you turn up for church and it doesn't take long. It's only that first day, week or two at church that you realise there are certain behaviours of of a Christian that are expected that weren't actually a part of the way that you lived before you got converted. Uh, so you start swearing loudly at morning tea and very quickly the hush that falls over the rest of the congregation when you start doing that and you go away and you think, 
maybe Christians don't swear, and so you start to think, I'll have to watch my language. And you begin to conform your behaviour to what is expected and what is rightly expected of you in the Christian life. And it can be, for some, a very radical shift. I remember we had a um, young guy in our <coughs> congregation, in the last church that I pastored, who got converted. He was um, probably in his mid-late mid, 20s. And uh, he'd been a Christian for only a few months. And I preached a sermon. It was called Saving Sex for Someone Special. And it was about simply sex is appropriate only within the context of Christian of marriage. And after the sermon, he came up to me and he said, Stuart, he said, he said, where did you get that from? He said, I've never heard the light of it. I said, really? He said, yes. He said, he said is that, where, where is it from? And I said, it's from the Bible. I said, it's everywhere in the Bible. And he said, how long has it been there? And I said, it's been there forever. It was a complete and utter shock to him. He'd grown up in a world where that was just not a part of his way of thinking. And so he needed to start to conform his life to the pattern of teaching that the scriptures lay down. Uh, the, the, the proper name that we have for it, of course, is sanctification. Uh, it's becoming more and more like Jesus, and it's like climbing a mountain. And at the very top of the hill, the very top of the mountain, is be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so we start off and we make good progress, and we begin to make radical changes to the way that we live, and it's all very exciting, and, and, and lots of things change in our lives in those early years. And then somewhere along the line, we just get a little bit weary, and it's like we settle down on that ledge. And we look around us, and we see that everybody else in our church basically looks like us. There are a few keen beings who seem to be powering on, but the reality is we look just like everybody else in our congregation. And we think, I've arrived. I can stop here. There's nobody else really to show me up, and I'm living just like everyone else. So whenever I might feel guilty about the sin in my life, I can look around and say, well, I'm, I'm as good as anybody else, if not better than some. And we all do it, don't we? And we hear that command of Jesus that ended our reading this morning. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, and we immediately jump to 1 John, don't we? If we say that we are without sin, then we are calling God a liar and we are a liar. And so obviously we're not meant to be perfect. And so therefore I can ignore that particular command of Jesus and I can just focus on settling down on the ledge where I'm sitting. We do that regularly. We, we do it in Bible studies, don't we? We explain away, we make excuses. We say, well, obviously nobody's perfect in this life. And that's right, none of us will be perfect in this life. I've already told you about the one perfect man that I met. It doesn't work. You're never going to be perfect in this life. That's true. But we don't sit for any length of time with those words of Jesus. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We want to quickly draw on the salve of the gospel promises. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. It's true. It's, it's rock solid. It's the promise that God gives. But we also need to sit sometimes with be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not because it's possible, but because it's commanded of us. Not because... It's going to happen in our lives, but because if we don't sit with it, 
if we just quickly jump over to the gospel promises, well, nobody's perfect, therefore I can be forgiven, we will never actually hunger and thirst to be righteous. We will simply be comfortable. And a watching world will take a good, long, hard look at we, the church, and they'll say, well, there's not a lot of difference between us, is there? Martin Luther uh, has a lovely quote uh, where he says, young fellows uh, are tempted by girls. When men reach 30, they are tempted by gold. When they reach 40, they are tempted by honour. And when they reach 60, they sit back and say, what a pious fellow I really am. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? get driven by all of these lusts and all of these desires, but when you get to 60, it's sort of past it all anyway, but then so what does it matter? It's not real pie, though, is it? At 35, I think it's often true that we're as perfect as we were at 21. And at 60, we're not really that much further advanced than we were when we were 35. Now, that might sound a little harsh. Uh, I think it's probably fairly true, though, of many of us. I'm speaking from personal experience. I know how hard it is to, to keep driving on in the Christian life, how easy it is to, to get so comfortable and to live with certain sins in our life that don't appear to be particularly important. We had, um, we had Jerry Bridges at SMBC Preaching Conference several years ago. Scott just reminded me of it just, just last night. I remember he, he, was, he spoke about what he called the respectable sins of the preacher. Uh, and uh, it, it, it worked everyone out. Because they're all those, those sins of the mind, those sins of attitude, which can so easily afflict us and we can so easily live with. And we can always say, well, everybody else is like that too. And we stop working at making ourselves perfect because our Father in Heaven is perfect. And so our Christian life settled into a pattern of mediocrity and content. So I want to ask you the question, and it's a serious one. I don't expect you to answer it publicly, but I do want you to think about it and to provide yourself an answer straight away. Did you wake up today determined to be perfect? Did you wake up today and as you rolled out of the bunk, you felt all that sand between your teeth and your toes? Did you stop and say, today, I'm going to be perfect? Not because you believe you will be perfect. Scriptures will tell you you're a liar and a fool if you think that. But your determination today is that I will live a life in conformity with the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to settle for how you were yesterday. Not content with mediocrity. Not presuming on the grace and mercy of God who will always forgive you, but determined to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, so that today others might see your good works. And as Jesus says in verse 16, at the beginning of the chapter, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Did you wake up today determined to be perfect? See, we've been looking at grace over the last uh, few talks, uh, this lavish, extravagant grace of God. We've seen his grace to us in creation. We've seen his grace to us in salvation. Each of us sit before God forgiven. 
each of us today, at this moment, if our trust is in the Lord Jesus, we stand before the heavenly throne, adopted as his sons and daughters. But the question now to ask ourselves is, do others see that grace in the way that we live? Having been created out of grace, having been saved out of grace, do others now see that grace of God shaping and influencing the way that we live? Is there a lavish and extravagant giving of ourselves over to God, over to his glory, over to his purposes, over to his discipleship? Is that grace, that lavish, extravagant grace of God being evidenced in the way that we now live? Martin Luther said that we can never scold ourselves into being good, but what he did speak about was being intoxicated by the knowledge of God. So perhaps I could have asked that question at the outset. Are you drunk on the knowledge of God? Does it make your head spin? Does it make you feel unsteady? Does it influence and shape the way that you live in the way that we know that alcohol can do that to people? But is it not alcohol, but is it the knowledge of God in all his wonder which shapes how we live day by day? Because when we begin to grasp the lavish extravagance of God's grace towards us, then we will be, like so many other figures in the scriptures, men and women who have given themselves over to the glory of God. Remember in Isaiah, Isaiah's in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, and God turns up and everything shakes and the mighty pillars begin to vibrate. And what's, what's Isaiah's first reaction? He says, woe is me. Why? Well, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. In other words, I'm a sinner and God has just turned up. Woe is me. How am I going to cope? How will I stand? There is no hope. And of course, God sends one of his scary cherubim to come with a coal and touches it on, on Isaiah's lips, this burning. I have cleansed you through fire. So God pronounces his forgiveness graciously, mercifully, all of God pronounces his forgiveness. And what, though, is Isaiah's reaction? When God says, who will I send? Isaiah says, send me. It's the inevitable response to God's grace. Send me. You see it in the Apostle Peter. No, Peter, three times you're going to deny me, Peter. No, I won't. I'm going to be terrific. Um, three times, of course, he denies Jesus. You can imagine what it would have been like for, for Peter after the resurrection. Knowing that Jesus is risen from the dead, but all the while thinking the last contact I had with him, I was denying him three times. All of this excitement that everybody's feeling about, about, about Jesus being raised from the dead, but does that include me? Or have I actually burnt the bridges? And so there's that wonderful beach scene where Jesus appears and uh, he's cooking breakfast and Peter dives into the water and uh, he's the first there. And then afterwards they're sitting and three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Each time Peter says yes, but three times. You can undo what you've done three times. And what is it that comes immediately after in John 21? Jesus begins to explain what's going to happen to Peter. And we know, don't we, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to be persecuted, 
that is going to be stoned, that he is going to give his life in going to tell more people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what grace will do to you. It upends your life and it changes the way that you live in every respect. So if you struggle to get excited about a life of surrender, that doesn't really sort of rock your boat. If you're unenthusiastic about a life of total discipleship, if, if following Jesus seems like uncomfortable, even confronting territory, then as I said yesterday, preach the gospel to yourself. Go over again, reread the gospels, remind yourself of just what God in the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. Now in Matthew chapter 5, we have the first three, first of three chapters known as the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon addressed to disciples of Jesus, so to people like you and I who have been touched by God's grace. And it unpacks for them what a grace-impacted life will look like. Now we're not going to go through all of it. Um, Bethany asked started at verse 20. We're going to pick it up there. We're not even going to cover all of that chapter, but we're going to cover enough to uh, hopefully have a sense of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus begins by saying, by giving a comparison. Notice verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's two forms of righteousness that are on view. There's the Pharisee's righteousness, the sort of righteousness, the sort of right living for God practiced by the Pharisees, which was external and skin deep. And there's the heart righteousness that grace calls forth in the followers of the Lord Jesus. You see, the, the, the Pharisees were exemplary in the way that they kept the law. They'd worked out there were 248 commands and they were all to be obeyed. There were 365 prohibitions and each one had to be observed. And Jesus comes to these people, the religious leaders of the day, the people who had a reputation that was surpassed by no one for fastidious commitment to obedience to the law of God. And Jesus says, well, your righteousness is going to have to be a whole lot better than those guys, I'm telling you. Followers of Jesus, they're going to look a whole lot different to the Pharisees. Martin Luther, this is Martin Luther Day, by the way, in case you're wondering. Martin Luther um, understood what he was saying in his day. He said on this, it is as if Jesus were to say of our time, that's Luther's time, the priests and the monks and those who are called spiritual, all of them, without exception, are damned to hell eternally. With all their works and all their ways, even when these are at their best. And Luther says, who could bear a sermon like that? Well, who indeed? Who can stand if the righteousness that is demanded of us is to be more than the Pharisees? And the answer is, of course, no one. Unless clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness, which was not one of external form and observance, but a heart righteousness that transforms from the inside out. Not a skin-deep appearance righteousness of the Pharisees where they, they, they give to the poor but they announce it loudly in the streets and they pray but they make sure that everybody knows that they are praying in public, where they fast but they make sure that they look dreadful while they're fasting so everyone knows just how righteous they are. Jesus says, I'm not talking about that kind of skin-deep righteousness. It counts for nothing. But followers of mine, those who have been touched by God's grace 
there is to be a heart-deep righteousness that goes from the inside out. That's what's required of God's people. It's what's required of those who have been touched by God's grace. In the verses that follow, Jesus gives us examples of this heart righteousness. And what Jesus commands of us is that our righteousness be qualitatively different, in other words, to this external hypocritical righteousness of the Pharisees. Have a look at the first two. Verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to them, Rakah, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. And down in verse 27, he says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And so he focuses in these two sections on hate and lust, the twin diseases, if you like, of the human heart. Both of them so easily dismissed and reduced to simply their outward expression. I've murdered no one. I've never slept with someone not my wife. Don't talk to me about sin. Of course I'm righteous. And Jesus says, that's just Pharisee righteousness. That doesn't count. It's not heart. You may not murder, but when you're angry, isn't anger the deep cause of murder? So if you possess the deep cause of murder in your heart, how can you claim to be a righteous servant of God? We had um, neighbours many years ago who were living in Newtown and we had new neighbours moving. And um, they hadn't been there very long when the loud music started. And uh, when I say loud music, it used to start about two in the morning. And they used to bring, in those days were the days of the big speakers, they'd bring their big speakers out into the backyard and they'd start playing the, the doof doof music. And... Uh, it was so loud that we'd wake up at two in the morning because the, the windows of our room were vibrating so loudly that the noise would wake us. Uh, it went on for, for a number of nights, um, drifted into weeks, and eventually I went out and asked them if they'd turn it down. Um, so they, they obliged by turning it back up again. Uh, and it just sort of deteriorated from then. Um, I went in and uh, asked them to uh, turn it down another night, and uh, the guy hit me. And uh, so it continued like that for a while until eventually we uh, complained to uh, the, the landlord, um, which was probably not the right thing to have done, uh, because that night, obviously having heard from the landlord, he began to hose our house down. Um, now, hosing houses down doesn't sound too, too sort of dramatic, but um, it was a very old house and, and high pressure hose, so what happened was that the whole house began to leak. So we had water pouring in through all of the window frames and all of the cracks, pouring into the into all of the rooms as he was hosing it down. So I called the police, and uh, the police came. By then he'd stopped, and he said, "I'm just watching television. What's the problem?" And the police came in and reported that, and I said, "Well, have a look at the water." And I said, "Yeah, I know that we can't do anything." So as soon as they left, he started again. So I thought I'll call the police again. So we called the police and this time they parked their paddy wagon down the street and they came up on foot and they caught him in the act. So they went in to, uh, uh, to speak with him and he hit them. Um, now, I don't know if we've got any policemen here, but, but what I observed was that when somebody hits a policeman, uh, the police respond. Uh, <laughs> you might expect they might respond. Um, there were soon 
screams from the, the neighbor's wife. They're killing my husband. They're killing my husband. She stole their walkie-talkie and began running down the street. With it. <laughs> by the time the whole thing finished, there were two paddy wagons, and the only thing that was missing was a police helicopter. I think under there. They were extraordinarily angry. Angry at life. They used to set off rockets in their backyard, and uh, the, first, the rockets were about this high. Homemade rockets. First one didn't fire terribly well, so it just landed on our roof. Um, a few weeks later, they had another one. I was out hanging out for washing and watched it as it headed over. We lived in Newtown. Headed overhead, heading basically in the direction of um, Kingsford Smith Airport. <laughs> some poor soul in St Peter's was probably hanging out there washing and a rocket landed in their backyard. They were angry at everyone. Uh, eventually, knowing that they were going to come back from the police station, we suggested that we should have um, a mediation with them. And they agreed by the grace of God. It was there that we found out where their issues with us came from. You see, they'd only recently got back one of their children from family and community services, being taken from them. And uh, the two people in the world they were most angry at were lawyers and social workers who'd been involved in that whole process. I was a lawyer, my wife was a social worker. Uh, they were angry at us. See, anger is everywhere in our society. That's, that's an extreme case, but, but it's there, isn't it? You read now about road rage, you read about swimming lane rage. I don't know if that's where it's Port Macquarie or not, but it's a rise in the city. And it's there in the church as well. That's the thing, it's there in the church. Men who direct their anger into domestic violence. The church is now starting to have to deal with that issue. Men who can be physically stronger and therefore bully and intimidate. And it flows out of this anger that Jesus is speaking of. Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember someone has something against you, leave the gift there in front of the altar. Go and be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. I'll tell you the truth, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. In other words, repent, Jesus says. You find this anger in you, repent. Ask for forgiveness, be reconciled. Why is it so wrong to be angry? Because it's a denial of the gospel. The gospel is all about reconciliation. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, but in the process, he recognises, he reconciles us to one another. Anger and its offspring, hate, are denials of the gospel. And yet they are sins we so easily tuck away in our hearts and refuse to repent or forgive or to be reconciled. It's the same, Jesus says, with adultery. You may not have slept with someone, not your wife, but when you lust after them, when you allow your thoughts to linger or imagine, isn't that lust, he says, just the root of adultery? Heart righteousness, that's what I want of you, he says, not Pharisaic. Avoiding adultery is relatively easy compared to avoiding lust. And notice Jesus' remedy in verse 29. It's a radical one, isn't it? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body 
than for your whole body to go into hell. Can you see, therefore, how serious Jesus is about heart righteousness in the followers of the Lord? Now, now I've got to say, institutions often have people in their care who have taken these words of Jesus literally. Uh, even one of the greatest of the church's early theologians, a man called Oregon. Now, Oregon's an interesting bloke. He's an enormously influential theologian. When he was a teenager, his father, Leonidas, was arrested during the persecutions of the Roman Empire on the church, 202 AD. Oregon was already a Christian and he wanted to join his father in suffering and probably martyrdom at the hands of the Roman persecution. His mother was appalled at the thought that she might lose not only her husband but also her teenage son. And so she did what any sensible mother would do and she hid all of Oregon's clothes. <laughs> now, at that point, Oregon had a choice and like many teenagers, he thought embarrassment was worse than death and so he refused to leave home to be martyred because he didn't have any proper clothes to wear. But years later, as an adult, convinced and having read these words of Jesus, Oregon castrated himself and made himself a eunuch. That's not what Jesus meant. It's not what Jesus demanded. He uses extreme language, exaggeration, hyperbole, to make a strong point. Don't minimise lust. That's his point. Don't shrug your shoulders and say, well, everyone does it. Jesus wants us to understand our sin is not trivial. It's not to be trifled with. The demand for heart righteousness is one that disciples of Jesus must take seriously. So if there's anger in your heart, get rid of it. If there's lust in your eyes, get rid of it. Make it an impossible thought that you could ever give in to it. Avoid every situation where it might be a temptation. And ultimately, say no. If you jump down a few more examples, verse 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Someone wants to sue you, take your tunic. Let him have your cloak as well. Someone force you to go one mile, go two. Give to the one who asks, don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The Old Testament, the demand for an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, for life for a life, is part of the legal system. It was intended to restrain revenge. It was intended to act as a restraint on excessive violence. Remember in Genesis 4, Lamech, he says, I have killed a man just for wounding me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged 77 times. Eye for an eye was brought in to restrain that kind of violence. Revenge was to be commensurate with the harm done. It's a principle that's in our legal system today. But it appears that in Jesus' day, the legal system had permeated over into personal realms and it was a justification for taking revenge on others. Damage my eye and I will blind you. You hurt me and I will make sure that you pay for it. And so Jesus gives us four shocking examples of how we ought to behave in our personal relationships. Not an eye for an eye. Not an exact revenge for whatever may be done to you. If someone humiliates you or hurts you, don't repay them. Let them do it again if they have to. Someone wants to take your shirt, well, let them have it and give them a coat as well. Someone wants you to carry a load for them, we'll say, I'll do an extra mile for free. Be generous, in other words. It's not laying down strict laws, 
Okay, my two miles is up. Now you can carry it yourself. He's not, he's not laying down strict rules. Nor is he justifying the actions of a bully. That would be a nonsense, wouldn't it? He's not saying here if somebody is domestically violent to you and they strike you on one cheek, you should turn the other. Of course not. The whole idea of using Jesus' words to justify that kind of behaviour is abhorrent. But Jesus wants us to understand the principle of generosity. Rather than exacting revenge, a refusal to retaliate. A commitment to do the loving thing, even where it costs ourselves to go the extra mile to do what is more than is required of us. They're illustrations of a radical principle that he's about to give to his disciples. And there it is in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your enemies, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's very familiar, isn't it? It's sort of one of the most famous teachings of Jesus that you should love your enemies. There's a book called The Top 100 by a man called Michael Hart. And he lists what Michael Hart regards to be the topmost 100 influential men and women in all of history. Number one, he puts Muhammad. Uh, number two, though, he puts Isaac Newton. <laughs> number three, of course, he puts Jesus. Jesus comes in number three. In his explanation as to why that's so, he said, if it was based simply on his teachings, I would put Jesus number one. But he said, my observation, and he takes these verses, love your fear enemies. He says, my observation is that remarkable as the teachings of Jesus may be, in my observation, they've never really been practiced by any of his followers. And so in terms of influence, I can only rank him at number three. Now, my first reaction when I read that was to say, oh, that's not true. Uh, and I can think of countless examples where it's not true. But I can also think of countless examples where it is true. And while he may be overstating the case, he nonetheless has a point. Love your enemies. Do you know how hard that is to do? Mm. Pray for those who persecute. I mean, it's mm. tempting, isn't it? The way to get around it is to say, well, I don't have any enemies. I just have people I don't like. <laughs> it's different. They're not my enemies. Enemies, enemies. Boy, enemies are serious. But no, I don't have enemies. But, you know, a lot of people who annoy the daylights out of me. So maybe we need to reverse the question a little and ask, rather than asking who is my enemy, ask rather who do I struggle to love? It's a different question, isn't it? It's a little bit easier, and I suspect the list is a little longer. Why do we find it so difficult to love others? People particularly who, who, who don't treat us well. Why do we find that so hard? All the advice is always forget it, forgive, move on, don't worry about it, it's a small thing, don't sweat it, all of that. But it doesn't work, does it? It just turns away at us. Well, notice that Jesus commands this and gives us a grounding for his command in the very character of God. So verse 43, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But then he says that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? So Jesus says, first of all, have a look at creation. We've already done that, haven't we? The many mercies of God, whether it's rain or sunshine, the fruit of good harvests and plentiful provisions, the pleasure of an ear for music, taste buds to soak up the flavours of paella, whatever it might be, as we've already seen, it's the character of God to be gracious, the character of God to be generous, the character of God to be loving, and he is being gracious and generous and loving towards all people, even those who are his enemies, even while we are his enemies. It's the character of God. That's what Jesus is saying. So you want to be a follower of God, well, it's the character of God that you will therefore be generous and loving in your dealings with those who are your enemies. Look at God. See how he's provided the sun and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We are children of an astonishing God. Love for enemies, Jesus says, is just imitating the character of God that we've seen already in creation. But more than that, look at the gospel. We've seen that as well, the grace of God in the gospel. Romans 5, even while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might dare to die. But God loved us so much. This is conflating a few verses that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish. How can God's children do anything other than to live that way now? As God has lived towards me, so I am to live towards others. As God was gracious toward me, his enemy, so I am to be gracious to those who are my enemies. At the very heart of God and at the centre of the gospel, there is God's love. An outward-looking, other-person-centeredness, a love for enemies, which reflects the heart of God. I am blessed with being married to a very gracious woman. And uh, after these neighbours of ours who had been violent had gone to, uh, had been arrested, um, and we'd been to mediation, uh, Pauline said, we really need to help them, don't we? wasn't my first thought I had. <laughs> but Pauline um, said we need to help them. And so we offered to uh, babysit their children while, um, while they were in court. And when he was fined, we offered to pay some of the fine for them. And so they took to leaving us empty pavlova shells on our front porch and six packs of VB. <laughs> Thank you. It was for me a remarkable evidence of the wonder of the words of Jesus. I can't boast it, I can't take credit, it was all Pauline's idea, but it was the right thing to do. A love for enemies that reflect the heart, the gracious, generous heart of God. So verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? The gospel must bring about radical change. If we say we've been born again, if we announce to all the world that we're a new creation, if we insist we're no longer a slave to sin but now a slave to righteousness, but we still live like a tax collector, 
If we still behave exactly as we once did, if we live a life that's largely indistinguishable from the life of our unbelieving neighbours, what difference exactly does it make to be a follower of Jesus? So how do you love an enemy and everything about them has, has, has gone into your, your being and threatened you? I think it's only when we understand the gospel. Keep coming back to that, don't we? Only then can I see that before God I am naked and lack for everything except what God has chosen to give me. I have nothing. I wear clothes that are entirely borrowed. They're called the righteousness of Jesus. I carry someone else's name, not even my own. It's the name of Christ. I'm a Christian. I live solely by the life of another. It is only in Jesus that I have eternal life. I have nothing in truth that God has not given me. From every breath that I draw to my life eternal and everything in between. And those who oppose me, those who criticise me or thwart me, they can't touch it. They can't take any of that away from me. They can't take it away from you either. We have nothing that can be stolen. No enemy can touch us. They can't hurt us, they can't harm us, they can't diminish us. Because all that we have, we have from God and they cannot touch what God and his goodness has given us. And so when we understand the gospel, we are free to love our enemies. They're no longer a threat. They're no longer a challenge to us. They're simply men and women in desperate need of the love of a Saviour. They're simply men and women who, for whatever reason, are behaving poorly, but they have a desperate need for the love of a Saviour. They may even be men and women who have received the love of a Saviour and are not yet caught up with what that means for them. But they still can't take away from me anything. Not a stitch of my clothing, none of my identity, because it is all of it borrowed from Jesus. Jesus closes out the teaching with a reminder, as we started with, of just how high the bar has been set. You're a child of God, a new creation, bought with a price. Your life is no longer your own to live. So therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't settle for yesterday. Don't settle for mediocrity. Don't presume on the grace of God. Look back on your Christian life with rejoicing and thanksgiving for the remarkable work of God in your life to bring you to the point that you are today. And I have to say, I've said this to a number of people, you're a remarkable congregation. Warm-hearted, friendly, Christ-centred, loving and caring. You can see that from the day first when I first arrived and it's just persisted right through. But don't keep looking back to yesterday and what you've become, but look forward to tomorrow and what you will be. Recognise that there is always a need for conviction of sin in the people of God. Are you someone for whom your sin sits lightly on your shoulders and is soon brushed off like dandruff? Or do you know what it means to come to the cross 
condemned, undone and destroyed and to know what it is to have that burden of your sin lifted from you by the gracious work of Jesus. To be washed clean and made over. And to know therefore that having tasted of the Lord and seen that he is good, having experienced his grace and his mercy, to know that life can never be the same again. You've been bought with a price. Your life is no longer your own to live, but to live rather for the God who saved you and lavished his grace on you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words of Jesus and we pray that pray that they would unsettle us, that uh, we wouldn't go away and just forget about them, but they might unsettle us deep down that we might be able to take a good long look at ourselves and rejoice in the wondrous work you have done in bringing us to be the people, the men and women that we are today. How kind you have been to us, how gracious and merciful, and we rejoice in that work of progress and sanctification. But Father, we pray we would not grow weary in doing good. Mm. But stir us up, that we would continue to hunger and to thirst to be righteous for your holy name's sake. Mm. Amen. Amen.